Genesis chapter 2 today. We've been in Genesis for some time and will continue to be because it's easy to find. Did you notice? You know that? We were going to study Ezra, but we can't find it. So, so we're going to stay in Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 2 and we'll begin in uh, verse 4. Uh, and uh, some people see this to be a second and distinct account of creation. Look what it says, Genesis 2 verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. So people say, okay, it's another creation story. That's not true. The creation story has been given in complete form uh, in chapter 1. In the first six days, God created the heavens, the earth, and all that they contain. So what's happening here? Now there's going to be a, a focus of attention on one specific ingredient in creation from chapter 2 now for the rest of the Bible. Would you like to guess what that ingredient is? Us. That's correct. It's us. And you could even see at the end of verse 4, in the day that the Lord made earth and heaven. Look at how the order is reversed. Not heaven and earth, earth and heaven. Because the earth and us in it are now the subject matter of the rest of the Bible. It's not a second account. It's a very Hebraic way of writing. In Hebrew writing, it's kind of like reading a newspaper where you read in bold, larger font a headline. And to get specific information, you've got to really zero in on the article beneath the headline. Chapter 1 is the headline. Chapter 2 now is the specific information, the details about the headline specifically as it concerns the earth and earth dwellers, us. So it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Do you notice something in verse 4 that has never appeared before? This is the first time in Scripture it appears. Yes, ma'am. That's, that's right. And there's something else as well. Denise? This is really true. You see where it says the Lord God? That's the first time it appears in Scripture. Hey, Sarah. Good to see you. This is the first time the Lord God appears. So listen. There are different, there's only one God. Do you agree with that? Good. But there are many, there are different divine names for God, revealing different aspects of his being. So this divine name, Lord, in Hebrew is Yahweh. Yahweh. It's never appeared before. In your Bibles, it's usually rendered in all capitals. L-O-R-D, all in uppercase. Lord. It's for Yahweh. It's never appeared before in the Bible, especially in tandem with the next word for God. It, it says God in our Bibles, but it's the Hebrew word Elohim. So we're reading Yahweh Elohim. They've never appeared together, and Yahweh has never appeared before. We've been reading about creator God called Elohim. This is the first mention of God as Yahweh. So what's up with this? Yahweh, by the way, is the most frequently used name for God in all of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And it depicts God in personal relationship with a person of covenant or a people in covenant. So when God identifies himself with Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, individuals in a covenant relationship with him, 
or the people of God, Israel, almost always the term for God used is Yahweh. This is God near. This is God in relationship with, this is creator in personal relationship with creaturely beings, Yahweh. Well, what about Elohim? That depicts the bigness, not the nearness, the bigness of God. Elohim is transcendent deity. This is God above and beyond. This is omnipotent, all-powerful God. This is the one who spoke into existence all that exists. Let there be, and there was. So this coupling of Yahweh Elohim says a lot. It's first meant to persuade Israel later when God establishes a covenant with her. This great deity, the evidence of which you see in the skies above, in the mountains, in the trees, this Elohim is your Yahweh. This transcendent deity came near. And in a covenant with him, you could know Elohim, not at arm's length or at a distance. You can know him personally. Now the equivalent truth for us, people of the new covenant, is that this great Elohim, whose uh, handiwork you can see if we pull down the screen or pulled up the screen in the skies and all the rest, this great beyond who you, who, living in heights you cannot attain to, this one worthy of all respect and before who you bow, this one is your Yahweh. He is your Jesus. He's not so far from you. He's not so big that you cannot access him for he has come near. He, Jesus, is your Yahweh Elohim. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Now let me peel off into uh, this conversation for a bit. It seems to me one of our challenges as Christians is to maintain the balance between both concepts of God, his bigness, Elohim, and his nearness, Yahweh. And we can get out of balance in one area or the other. For instance, if you overemphasize the bigness of God, then you won't think you can be close to him. You will respect him, you will honor him and sing his praises but you really won't be comfortable doing life together. You won't, in prayer, open up your heart to him. You'll think he's so big he has no time for puny little you. Generally, people who err in that direction, overemphasizing the bigness of God, you don't have to buy this, I'm just telling you in my experience, those are usually people who never had a close relationship with their dads. If the dad was absent through death or divorcement, or just through personality. If the dad never drew near and allowed you to, no hugging, no affirmation, no closeness, no life sharing, you might have grown with respect for that person as your dad, but that's about it. And so we're prone to transfer that onto Heavenly Father. That's a big mistake because he's different. But we're prone, therefore, to feel more comfortable with the bigness of God less comfortable with the nearness of God because we don't know what it's like. We've never experienced it. On the other hand, there are some who overemphasize the closeness of God, his Yahweh-ness. What does that mean? Those are people who are bringing, down, bringing God too far down from heaven to earth. 
a little too familiar. Those are people who've made God friend instead of one who's friendly. (laughs) Those are folks who kind of have reduced God to the level of appear only a little smarter. Those are people who are prone to read the Bible and pick and choose from it what they think applies to them because they don't respect God as authoritative Elohim whose word is non-negotiable. They see him to be no different than someone they might be conversing with whose words can be accepted or not. By the way, we're seeing that tendency uh, like crazy in many churches across the land. I just spoke to someone out of state two days ago on the phone, and this person told me my favorite verse of Scripture is John 3.16, but I, I, uh, I don't pay attention to verses that have to do with God condemning people. I like that he loves the world, but I don't like that he condemns. You see, so that's a person who's brought Elohim so far down that this person thinks she and he are on an equal footing in terms of the authority of his word. So what's the deal in the Christian life? We just have to maintain the balance between the bigness of God and the nearness. He's both. I find what helps is to read the Bible because the Bible does such a wonderful job of giving a balanced perspective (laughs) on the God of the Bible. I know that doesn't sound very profound, but it sort of is. Many are reading devotional books sooner than they are the Bible. They're good. They're not as good. I must tell you, if you really want to get an accurate notion of who God is, I'm afraid you're going to have to do the hard work of reading his word, not somebody's word about his word. No matter how good is the devotional, if you don't mind me insulting you, it's what a lazy Christian does to get close to God. Um, Uh, uh, someone who's really serious about getting close to God will sit at his feet, listen to his word. It's a little bit tougher going to read the Bible than to read someone's uh, already digested and regurgitated analysis of the Bible for you. I'm not saying devotional guides contain bad information. I didn't say that at all. But you're bypassing the development of of a very personal relationship with God by reading what someone else has to say about it. I'd be very, very, very careful. You're going to be on pablum for the rest of your Christian life. You'll never grow to have a taste for the meat of the word. You develop a taste for it, just like you do any kind of food, by staying in it. I really recommend to you reading the Bible. You'll get a marvelous presentation of both the nearness of God and the bigness of God. You'll find the Heavenly Father you never had. You'll find him in full array of his balanced attributes, and you cannot get it anywhere else. Some devotionals are so focused on the warm hugs of God. Um, Boy, I can get in trouble. Particularly devotionals addressing women's issues. Uh, Because women are are feeling uh, people, and um, sometimes devotionals, sometimes specifically addressed to women, really emphasize the nearness of God isn't that good, but they de-emphasize other aspects. I would be really, really, really careful. Now, for men, on the other hand, men are a little more head-oriented and cognitive. You see what I mean? So you'd be good to read the Psalms when you get to the Psalms so that you can start feeling, getting in touch with that. But here's, here's the deal. Why do we call it the Word of God? 
and spend so little time in it. That's all. Just read the Bible. Okay, so here you have Yahweh Elohim. Now, um, Yahweh, we don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. We don't know how to pronounce it because in the Hebrew, it's made up of four consonants. In, in, as we move to English, it would be Y-H-W-H, called the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. So we don't know exactly how to pronounce it. So here's what my people have done. Eventually, they got to Exodus and read about the Ten Commandments. By the way, uh, we should just tell you, at this rate, in your lifetime, we will never get to Exodus. <laughs> just want you to know that. <laughs> and anyway, it's harder to find. So Exodus chapter 20 gives us the Ten Commandments, the third of which says, don't use the name of the Lord God in vain. Right? So my people read that, took it seriously, and they said, whoa. What if we happen to be one day reading the Torah out loud? The Torah are the first five books of Moses or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. What if we're reading the Torah out loud one day and we come upon Yahweh and we, print, we say Yahweh out loud? But on that day, we were in a bad mood. We were just, we were just, we weren't doing good. We weren't serious about what we were reading. We would run the risk of using Yahweh's name in vain, thus breaking the third commandment. So out of respect for the name, my people chose another biblical name for God. It's Adonai. Have you heard of that one? Adonai. It's legitimate. It means master or lord or owner. But it isn't the tetragrammaton, the unmentionable name. It isn't Yahweh. So my people, whenever Yahweh occurs in the Bible, they have, sub, they have read instead Adonai, Adonai. So that's problematic because the third commandment is not warning us about pronouncing God's name. It's about living in a way that is inconsistent with God's name. That's how you use his name in vain. For instance, you ever watch these award shows on TV? I do because I'm... I'm a knucklehead. What can I tell you? And inevitably, some moral reprobate who's just won a reward, uh, an award gets up there and says, well, first, I want to thank God. Well, this is a guy who just slept with 83,000 women yesterday. <laughs> this is someone living in, in outright rebellion against God. And to invoke the name of God, even flippantly like that, that's what it is to use God's name in vain. But anyway, that's how we get... Adonai as a replacement for Yahweh. What about Jehovah? You know about that one, Jehovah? Um, Jehovah is an amalgamation of the consonants in Yahweh. There's four of them, Y-H-W-H, and the vowels in Adonai. And you get Jehovah. So Jehovah is actually a sound, not an actual name. It's come to represent God, and I don't, there's no problem with that. Don't miss, stayed upon Jehovah hearts. You know that one? Did I just make that up? <laughs> I mean, so we, there are old hymns. And so no problem, no problem, but you just need to know. Specifically, if you have a friend who's a Jehovah's Witness or ever have conversation, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe Jesus is the God. They believe he is a God. 
He's a lesser God than Jehovah God. So they believe the name for God is Jehovah, which is a little ironic because Jehovah is not even a name. It's just a combination, fairly random, of the consonants in Yahweh, the vowels in Adonai, once again, in an attempt to avoid using the name of God in vain. Okay, Yahweh Elohim, introduced to us in verse 4. Folks, what we're reading about here is pre-sin environment. Before mankind sinned, this is what it looked like. So verse 5, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. For two reasons, certain vegetation was not yet produced. One, no rain. Two, no farmer. No man to cultivate it. Now God's going to take care of both. He's going to create man and put him in a place where he can cultivate the ground. I would like for you to see uh, at this point that cultivating the ground or work is not a result of sin. Um, Man didn't sin until later. (laughs) Genesis 3 talks about that. We'll get there one day. Sometimes we are associating work with the consequence of man's fall in Genesis due to sin. But no, God intended work, if you look at it, as a blessing for man. I think you can understand this. Both men and women feel really, really good, don't we? When we are able to do something that uh, meets a need, that makes a contribution, it gives us a sense of satisfaction to have a purpose in life, a vocation that is purposeful and that meets a need. Male or female, don't you sleep better at night? You just feel good about yourself. Well, God wants us to have this satisfaction in fruitful, purposeful labor. So he gave man that opportunity. He didn't need to use man. He blessed him with work. So that man would have the experience in cultivating the earth of bringing it to its full and fruitful potential. And then he could step back and look at this harvest. And he could feel good about things. He's doing something purposeful. So what happened after sin entered the world? Well, now work changed. Now it became toil. Now it became quite laborious. And now the earth on which man was to work didn't yield its fruit quite so easily. In fact, it yielded thorns and thistles, you see. So now man has to work real hard to clear those out. In fact, the crown of thorns, which um, was impressed upon the Lord, during his sufferings, would not even have been a reality but for human sin. If, we, if our forebears, Adam and Eve, did not sin, the consequence on the environment being that the ground gave rise to thorns, there would be no possibility of the Romans fashioning a crown of thorns to cause the Lord to bleed. Think of the ramifications of human sin. It has affected us, but it even has affected Yahweh Elohim because he's not just Elohim removed from it all. He's Yahweh who has come near. And his nearness, in a sense, has pained him. We've pained him with the consequences of our sin. And there's a second thing I'd like you to note in verse 5. You see at the end of the verse where it says, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. This is actually what it sounds like in Hebrew, 
and there was no Adam to cultivate the Adama. The Hebrew word for man is Adam or Adam. And the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. Here we're being shown the connection between our essential nature and the earth. We come from it. There was no Adam to cultivate the Adama. From dust you come and to dust you will return. Absolutely. More to be said about that in a second. But a mist, according to verse 6, used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The word mist is probably more accurately translated something like a river. (laughs) We get the idea of mist of water, like, you know, you spray a little bottle, there's a little mist. No, there was probably a subterranean flow of water which hydrated the earth before rain came from uh, above. And then it says in verse 7, then the Lord God formed man or Adam of dust from the Adama. There you have it again. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Folks, God, we have seen, made the world out of nothing, and he made us out of next to nothing, dust. Don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but we are dusty. We like to take pride in our human humanity. You know, the invincible spirit of humankind. Believe in yourself. You can be anything you want to be. You are a clod of dirt. <laughs> be warm. Be filled. Go in peace. Folks, i got to tell you, we think much more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Now, wait, we're not done with the story. I'm just saying man's, I didn't talk about man's worth and value and design yet. I'm just talking about the stuff from which we have very lowly beginnings. We're made of material from the earth. In fact, I read a medical article recently. The doctor said in order for our lives to be sustained, we have to have a good supply of at least 60 minerals from the earth. We're still connected folks. We're very earthly. We're, we're, not that spe- we're not special at all for crying out loud. By the way, the word Adam or Adam for man also could be translated red. Where does that come from? Probably from red clods of clay. Folks, we're all a bunch of red clod of... We're mud people. What could I... someone said the workmanship far exceeds the materials the materials is dirt but the workmanship ah therein is where we take on a special character in spite of our very lowly beginnings from this point on the rest of the bible concerns us god has given dirt us Tremendous worth. Now, both animals and humans share the gift of life, but humans are made differently. We're made to enjoy a rather unique relationship with Almighty God. See, of all the other creatures, we see the words, and God made or and God created. But here we read, the Lord God formed man. Can you see it in the text there? The Lord God formed. What does that mean? It's like a potter with clay. 
Can you imagine the potter standing or sitting by this object spinning around? He has both hands on it quite lovingly. He is very purposefully fashioning it. It's not arbitrary. It has his entire attention. He's very particular about it, very specific. He is shaping it exactly in accordance with his design for it. That's exactly the word used here with reference to us. God took the stuff of the earth. That's all we are. But he gave us such personal attention that he made us with a divine design, the likes of which made us of great worth and much different than any other created thing. Folks, God created light in the power of his mere word. But to create us, he fashioned a body out of the dust of the earth. He transformed this clay and he made something new. And then he breathed life into it. Look what it says. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Think about this. I like to think of God surrounding Adam's face with his palms and breathing into him the breath of life. So a lump of clay became, it says, a spirit, a soul. God gave him. God did not do this with any other created thing. Look at the connection and the personal, intimate nature with which God made us. Folks, we're not just material beings, this body, corpus. We're not just corporeal beings. We have a spirit and soul as well because God imparted it to us. My dog doesn't have what we have as much as I love my dogs. They lack spirit and soul, but God breathed it into us. That's why when we live below our essential nature, it's a shame. So when we make of ourselves only our bodies and therefore think the purpose of life is to simply gratify our bodies at all costs, we're living far below our status. So when the world says, if it feels good, do it, they are reducing us to machines material. They're making us, the world is, no different than rocks and trees and dogs and all the rest. And we are distorting the image of God in us. The world says, eat what you want, drink what you want, sleep with whom you want, because there will be no corruption of your spirit and soul, because you have none. You're just material. You see what I mean? Don't do that. Say, I'm worth living up to whom God made me to be. We're living far below the status bequeathed to us by Almighty God. To humanity, God has given the opportunity, the special dimension of relationship. And he did something else. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden. God did it. Oh, he used water and he used man, but he really did it. He uses agencies to get his work done, where some of them, I hope, but really all good things are attributable to him. It's really God who planted a garden toward the east. Have you ever paused to ask the question, east of what? And have you come up with any answers? East of what? What are your thoughts on that one? Uh, not East of Eden, although there's, isn't there a book or movie by that title? 
<laughs> east of what? East of what? Uh, okay, I got gotcha. you. Uh, no, because they are actually in this garden, which is to the east of something else. East of a river? Okay, good thought. Wrong, but good. <laughs> yes, sir. Ah, who wrote this? Where was Moses when he wrote it? What country? He's in what was called then the land of Canaan. Folks, everything from this point on in the Bible is written from the perspective of that piece of land called Canaan or Israel. Everything. It's east of the land of Canaan. Now, I've got to tell you something here. Everything from this point on is about man. Everything this, from this point on is about the land God put man in. It's Israel. Not only is the first book about Israel, and then you can say, well, then he moved past it. Well, I found out that the last book is about Israel too. Because the God-man returns, with all due respect, not to Pearland or Pasadena. He returns to this land. So for the Christian who is neglecting to pay attention to this land today, the land of Israel, you're missing out on a lot. And it saddens me that in pulpits across the nation on every Sunday, there's no mention about what's happening in Israel. This troubles me because you can barely read any book of the Bible that doesn't make mention of the land of Israel. Now, you can attribute this to the fact that I'm a Jewish guy, or you could just say, even though he's a Jewish guy, what he said is true. Because even Jewish guys sometimes say things that are true. <laughs> Folks, it's about that particular piece of real estate. We should be interested in that particular. I didn't tell you what position to take. I just said at least you ought to have some interest in that particular place of real estate. That's the locale for God's whole redemptive plan for the universe. That is the locale for the reestablishment of his kingdom on earth. Israel. That's what it says. Well, okay, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east. It says, in Eden. Doesn't it say that? In Eden? Eden means delight. There was a delightful place to the east of the land of Canaan. Notice it says, God put this garden. The word garden in Hebrew is gan, and it means a hedged-in place. It means it's a safe place, a place of protection. God made this a wonderful garden, safe and able to sustain humankind. Rivers were there. Uh, fruit was there, companionship was there, God gave man, woman, all the rest. You know what all this is about? If man chooses to sin against God, man can't excuse his sin by saying, I was raised in a deprived environment. That's the excuse today, you say. My mother didn't breastfeed me, I was deprived. My father didn't play Little League Baseball with me, I was deprived. I was raised in a single-parent household. I'm deprived. I'm in the inner city. I'm deprived. My school building is not as nice as yours. I'm deprived. I didn't say these things don't have impact on a person, but they're not excuses for sin. Not at all. The environment cannot determine what a spirit being like you and I choose to do. He breathed into us the breath of life. Therefore, we could have mastery over the environment, not the environment over us. Interesting to me how sinful people refuse to acknowledge the problem today as sin, and instead they want to call it economic deprivation or uh, we need more money for the public schools. 
Folks were pumping in more money to the public schools than ever in the history of humankind. Can I be frank with you? I'm not getting a good return on my investment. The school I went to can't hold a candle with the schools around here. They're unbelievable, the buildings we're building right now, equipped with all this media stuff and all the rest. All I know is we went and learned reading, writing, and arithmetic and all this kind of stuff. Folks, we are misdiagnosing the real issue because we don't want to confess to the real issue. We sin. We sin. So anyway, uh, we can't say to God, I made, I made these bad choices, we call them bad choices and mistakes because I was low this, that, or the other thing. Things contribute, I got it. But the real issue is, in spite of all that you have given me, I have chosen to live life apart from you, and therefore I do what I want to do, and that's called sin. So uh, God gave them everything in gone in this garden of delight, Eden, uh, and there he placed a man whom, whom he had, whom he had uh, formed. Now, notice the verse does not say the Garden of Eden. Did you notice that? We always speak of the Garden of Eden. To be uh, more precise, it's the Garden in Eden, isn't it? See, Eden is a more expansive area, wherever it is, in which this garden occupies a particular place. So it's really the garden not of Eden, it's the garden in a place, a larger place called Eden. Now, where is it located? We know it's to the east of the land of Canaan. Can we get more specific? Yeah. Because if you read on, we read about four rivers flowing from it, two of which are the Tigris and Euphrates. What modern-day country are they in? Iraq. Or Mesopotamia, meaning the land between the rivers or the Fertile Crescent area. It's very likely that the Garden of Eden was located in what is today, modern-day Iraq. Isn't that interesting? Then it says in verse 9, key verse, out of the ground... Well, let me ask you. As you look to verse 9, it's all about trees. Um, Two specific trees are mentioned in the second part of the verse. But two kinds or categories of trees are mentioned first. Can you identify what those two kinds of trees, categories of trees are? Well, not good and bad. What'd you say? Okay, that's exactly right. One category of tree, good for food. The other, nice to look at. Can you see it? Just read the text. Read the text. There it is. Let's, let's camp out here just for a second. If God is good, you would expect a good God to give you the bare necessities, food. He did. I put in there every tree that is good for food. You say, thank you. I expect that. But then he says, and every tree that is pleasing to the sight. You know what that's called? Icing on the cake. That's a bonus. That's not the bare necessity. You need food. That's necessary. But to see beautiful things, you know what that is? That is a good God blessing us. That is a God who said, I want you to enjoy what I made. That is a God who said, can you please justify your rebellion against me? I put you in the Garden of Eden. You lacked for nothing. I gave you bonuses and you still sinned against me. What's wrong with you people? Folks, when you walk about, and you see 
the created world in its beauty. You see the diversity of color. You see texture and mosaic and all the rest. You say, how great thou art, Elohim. And then you say, and I know you as Yahweh. You say, wow, you who made that, you're my Abba Father. You're my Savior. You're my Jesus. And I think those who have uh, an inclination in the direction of the visual arts or literary arts, writing, poems, stories, painting, photography, are blessed with the opportunity of capturing the beauty of what God has made and sharing it with the rest of us. We Christians have for a long time abandoned the arts to those who don't know Yahweh Elohim. And what are they producing? Degraded stuff. Uh, Folks, I think those who are skilled in the visual and literary arts do ministry for the rest of us. Capture in a photograph, capture in a painting, capture in a poem the glories of what God has made. And let me read it because I can't do what you just did. He gave it for us to feast on and enjoy. I need food. Apparently, I also need the aesthetic beauty of the world he made to feed other aspects of my soul. Very, very important. So this is what a good God did. Now, those are two categories of trees, but there are two specifically named trees which occupy a central place in the Garden of Eden. Now, what are those? Can you identify those in verse 9? Yeah. First is the, uh, uh, the tree of life, and the second is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're smack dab. It says in the midst of the garden. Adam and Eve couldn't miss it every day. There they are. What's the tree of life? Well, I think it represents the life given and sustained by the giver of life. The giver of life is the kind of life God wants us to live. And so that means a full and meaningful life, and in addition, an immortal and eternal life. It's the stuff that makes of the life God wants to give. It's the source of that quality of life. And the quality of the life God wants to give doesn't have a limited duration. It's eternal. That's the tree of life. But then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of that one, later, God says, lay off. Don't eat from it. You can do anything, he said, and eat from any tree. But you cannot eat from this tree. And you say, why? Isn't knowledge a good thing? This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Shouldn't we know stuff, grow, learn, develop wisdom? Why does God put a keep back sign from this? What's up? Well, for one thing, I think God wants to demonstrate what we're made of. He gives them one mandate, one, in a perfect environment. And they break it. We break it. First man and woman represent us. We're all the same. One in a perfect environment. They're deprived of nothing. And that's the tree they go after. So why specifically does God say, but don't do this. It's not just an arbitrary commandment. Don't do this. Don't get wisdom this way. I'll tell you why. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and many other places in Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom or knowledge. God said, I want you to be wise. 
I want you to know stuff. Here's how you know it. First, pay due respect to me. That's the beginning of wisdom. You cannot bypass me in your pursuit of wisdom. You will find out things that will do you more harm than good if you try to find out those things by bypassing me. I'm telling you the starting point for the development of wisdom is to fear me, to respect me. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did not do. He said, lay off the tree. They said, no. Then we see the fruit. Looks good. Uh, Knowledge would be good. We would be like God. And Adam's probably thinking, man, my wife's nagging me to death anyway. So they partake of it. They use their own reasoning to uh, consume the knowledge of good and evil prematurely. What do I mean by that? They now developed experiential knowledge of what's good in life and what's bad in life. But along with it, they had no self-regulating mechanisms to do what's good and to, do what's, and to avoid doing what's bad. They knew about all these things and couldn't make wise choices about what to do and not to do. What they shouldn't have done, they done did. What they should have done, they didn't do. And so I think God eventually would have wanted them, us, to partake of this source, this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they weren't ready for it. They don't know his moral character yet. They don't know what they're made of. They don't understand their sheer and utter dependence on him. They just decide we can get directly to the source of knowledge without God. And what has humankind done with the knowledge which we have gotten? Good night, folks. We're in a mess. We can't distinguish what's good and what's bad. Look at The scriptures say that and it's borne out by the news. What's good we call bad and what's bad we call good. We think it's good for two guys to be married together. But we think it's bad for two kids to pray in school. Am I missing something? We think it's good to kill babies in the womb. We think it's bad to spank a child. This is what we've done with our experiential knowledge of good and evil. A good God doesn't want to withhold things from us, but he knows it's premature. We can't handle it. It's like when your college-age kid goes off to school for the first time. A lot of times they're not ready for independence from you yet. They go hog wild. They can't self-regulate yet. Something went wrong. This is what God is saying. I want you to grow. I want you to mature. But you're not ready to access the tree of the knowledge of good and evil yet. Instead, fear me. I'll bring you along. So you know what this is? This is an indication of man's quest for autonomy from God. That's what's at stake here. Autonomy means independence. That's the basis of sin. Sin is when we seek to meet legitimate human needs illegitimately. When we seek to meet our legitimate need for relationship, and for intimacy, and all the rest, illegitimately. The sin is not to have the need. The sin is to bypass God and try to get it met our way. It's a quest for autonomy from God because there's something in us that drives us to independence. That's sin. I respect Elohim. I bow to him. I come to his church and all that kind of stuff. But I don't want this Yahweh stuff where he regulates my life, tells me what to do. I really don't want him that close. I, I, I would rather have him be there when I need him but essentially keep hands off. 
Because I have ways to meet my own needs. The tree is right there. I see it every day. I could just go to it and eat from it. And then I will be like God. How are we doing so far? We doing good? Usurping God's authority? So that's what has happened. And by the way, welcome to the world today. It's humankind making an intense effort to be autonomous from God. So we're in trouble. I don't know if you knew that. And there's no way out. We cannot get back to the Garden of Eden. Paradise lost cannot be restored by our own efforts and initiatives. This president, that president, this bond issue, that program, this. We are the world. We are. Let's all hold hands. Why can't we love each other? Because we love ourselves. That's why we can't love each other. Nonsense. We cannot restore what we have lost. What are we going to do? Oh, for a Savior who would rescue us from it all. Enter Jesus. First Adam, through one act of disobedience, victimized the entire human race. Second Adam, as he is referred to, or last Adam in the New Testament, Jesus, through one act of obedience, saved us. First Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. Second Adam obeyed God in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll read it to you. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Can we ever, ever see the Garden of Eden, this hedged-in park-like paradise? Can we ever see it again? Yes. I'll close with two verses of Scripture from the closing book of the Bible Revelation, this is chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear. Everyone here who has at least one ear, can you raise your hand? Okay, cool. So no one's excluded. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, an angel barred them access to the garden. Why? If they ate also from the tree of life, they would live eternally in an unregenerated state. And God loves us too much to let that be our eternal destiny. So he didn't let them eat then of the tree of life. But we will eat from it in the paradise of God. And then Revelation chapter 22 Uh, Verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me, the me is John, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river, here we go again, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Paradise lost by us will be paradise regained by Yahweh Elohim, transcendent deity who is the great beyond.
but not so far removed that he's lost an interest in saving us. He's also Yahweh. He's Jesus. He's the totality of the perfections of God. He's the preexistent deity, and he came in flesh to suffer and die, to make up for what first Adam and what we by extension have done to solve the sin problem and bring us back into this protected place again, the paradise, the heaven of God. Do you know Jesus as your personal deliverer, savior, and rescuer? This is what the benefit thereof is. Your residence, citizenship in the paradise of God. The alternative is not good. Total separation from uh, the leaves of trees producing healing for the nations. A resolution of all that which we have broken and cannot resolve. No political party can, no church can. No taxpayer can, but Almighty God can. He can provide the healing of the nations. That is to say, those who have gained entrance into the the paradise of God through sheer and utter trust. That's what faith is. Trust in the words and work of Jesus the Messiah. He said, I suffer and die for you. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are, the, that's the, those are the words of Christ. And because he's Yahweh Elohim, he can make this marvelously personal promise. And because he's Elohim, he has the power to fulfill it. You can bank on his word. And if you are, you will see what the paradise of God is once again. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for what you've done. By grace, by mercy, by your sheer and utter goodness to rescue those of us in whom no good thing dwells. Thank you for the hope of eternity on an entirely different plane. With all due respect, Lord Jesus, we don't want to live in this state of affairs forever. We prefer to be back in the garden of God, the one filled with delight, the one characterized by paradise, the one characterized by healing sources for all the nations. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Last Adam for covering up the sin of first Adam. And thank you for your grace by which through faith we can benefit from it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. You are left leaving early. Look at this. Please note this for all the other times that I went till two. See you next time. <laughs>